Brother Guy. Hello, can you hear me now? Yes, yes, I can hear you okay. now. Beautiful. It's good if I turn the microphone on. Well, that, uh, that's conceivable. I'm going to see if I can add my friend Bill here. Okay. Where is he? Bill Schmidt here, hello. Oh, look at hey, that. Hey, Bill, it's Brother Guy. Well, hello, Brother, how are you? Doing great. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm impressed with the technology, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not impressed with me, very that's, clearly. That's right. <laughs> Where are you? Very good to be back in touch with you. Um, yes. I think Bill's in South Bend. I am down here in beautiful rural southeast Indiana. Ah, well, you're being redundant. You don't have to. If you say southeast, you know it's beautiful. That's right. Ah. That's right. That's right. It's uh, in- entirely <laughs> populated by German-American relatives of mine, basically. So, Indeed. So, All right. Well, so this is episode uh, 30. Episode 30 of uh, That's So Second Millennium. So we have the great privilege of having uh, Brother Guy Consolmagno with us, the director of the Vatican Observatory. I'm Paul Geesting, and this is Bill Schmidt with me. And uh, Brother Guy. So, um, You're welcome, Brother Guy. Yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Even if only digitally. If only digitally. Right. Well, you know, it's uh, pe- people have made this possible, and we're going to take advantage of it. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, gosh, you know, I doubt that many people, not that there are, you know, at this point necessarily just thousands and thousands of people listening to this podcast, but... I doubt that many of the people who do listen to it need much of an introduction, but uh, would you mind just talking a little bit about how long you've been associated with the observatory and what your different roles there have been? Sure. Um, oh, I thought you were going to have your listeners introduce themselves to me. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's um, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying it's worth the point so, that might happen, but. Right. Um, so as you can tell from my accent, even though I have an Italian last name, I've got an American accent. Yes. Uh, people in Italy are sometimes surprised, and I remind them I was educated in America, as was my father and grandfather. Yeah. Um, my name's Guy Consolmagno, and I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Went to the Jesuit High School there. Uh, went to MIT more years ago than I want to admit. And uh, from there on, did my doctorate at Arizona. And bounced around the astronomy world at various places, uh, ranging from Harvard to MIT as postdocs to a really lovely little college called Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, where I taught astronomy, Mm -hmm. and in the Peace Corps, for that matter. Yeah. And in 1989, I had this crazy idea to join the Jesuits, Mm -hmm. a religious order uh, famous for running universities. I thought I'd be, you know, teaching at one of the universities. But, you know, they have these three vows you have to take, poverty, chastity, obedience. Well, poverty, I was used to it when a grad student. There you go. And chastity, I was used to because I'd been a grad student. Yes. <laughs> but obedience, yes. I was not used to. Yeah. <laughs> and so under obedience, they told me that I was being assigned to go live in Rome. Uh, I had to live in the Papal Palace, overlooking a beautiful mountain lake, mm-hmm. uh, eat that terrible Italian food. Right. And, oh, yeah, they had a collection of more than a thousand meteorites. Yes. And meteoritics was what I had been, you know, one of my specialties. Exactly. So I started doing that in 93 and 
did a lot of interesting science with the meteorites, including measuring their physical properties of densities and porosities and magnetic properties, good things like that. Mm -hmm. And for my sins, in 2015, Pope Francis appointed me to be the next director of the observatory. So I've been the director now. This is my third year. Right. So you've had, what was it? You said 93, you were assigned to the observatory. So if I'm, if I'm understanding my Ignatian spirituality correctly, you had about 22 years of consolation before the Lord imposed the desolation of your current position on you. <laughs> Something like that, yes. Something like that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that would be like being a child in a candy store, being assigned to, to curate all those, all those beautiful meteorites, including, okay, I'm going to get slightly geeky about it, because you do have at least one Martian meteorite. How many Martian meteorites do you have? How many pieces of distinct falls do you have? We have... I used to know this, but I stopped being the curator in, in 2015. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say off the top of my head, I can think of at least five, maybe six okay. different falls of meteorites, okay. including a 150-gram uh, piece of Nakla, uh -huh. which was the one that landed in Egypt in the uh, early 19th, 20th century. Yeah. Um, and 19th century fall, it's actually much rarer, called Chassigny. Oh, yeah. Which for a while was un unique. Yeah. And... Uh, I know we have a thin section of Shurgati, and then we've been given over the last few years at least three different um, Martian meteorites that came from the Sahara. Okay. Uh, the most notable being Tissant. Tissant. Okay. 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 So you have that one. All right. Yeah. yeah. Not as, and of course, you know, for for the listener, this is this is something where we can maybe actually edify the listeners a little bit. So there are three different classes of Martian meteorites, and then a few, at least one, that doesn't really fit the classifications. I mean, Chassigny used to be, like you said, distinct until fairly recently. Um, but of course, those three classifications are called what? Chassignites, Shurgatites, and Noclites, which the attentive listener will realize we have the type you have the type specimens for each of those. Of a piece three, of the type yeah. specimen. One of the funny things about Chassini, because it's so rare and yet so important, mm -hmm. is we had some big fragments and then one, I would say, maybe a gram or so. And we've had great relations with the Natural History Museum in London. Okay. In part because I spent six weeks in Antarctica when we were on a meteorite hunting trip with one of the uh, scientists there, uh, Sarah Russell, who's remained a great buddy to these days. Her okay. daughter is my goddaughter. And as a result... Uh, we were able to take this piece of Cassini to the Natural History Museum of London, where they had, at the time he's retired now, probably the best maker of thin sections. And uh -huh. we did a deal. Whenever, if we can get a thin section made for free, we'll let you make another thin section. These are slices of the meteorite that are you know, 10 microns thick, about as thick as a human hair. Yeah. Light can shine through them. But these are ideal for doing detailed science. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're how the science is done. These and we were willing to loan them out. Over the last 25 years, about half or more of the science done on Chassignites have been done on our meteorite. On Yeah, yeah. on pieces of the Vatican Observatory's piece of Chassigny, yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep, and it's, I mean, they're just, I mean, now we're up to, are we up to 100 different Martian meteorites? Some, somewhere in that vicinity, I think. They're still, they're still pretty rare. 
Yeah, well, I, my, the number I remember was 60, but that was a few years ago. We could well be up to 100 by now. Yeah. Since we've discovered you can find them in the dry deserts, uh, that's really right. increased oh, the yeah. numbers that have come into our collection. Yeah, hmm. Go, going going to Antarctica and foraging for them there, or going to the Sahara, or, or people bringing them in the Sahara. Yeah. Yeah, that's, there, there are many novels waiting to be written about the uh, business of, of collecting meteorites. It's... Uh, mm-hmm. One of the first books that describes finding meteorites in the desert was by the French author of The Little Prince, whose name is French and I can never pronounce correctly, uh, Sanazou Dupre, or something okay, like that. Exuberant, yeah. um, but he, he wrote a book called, I think, uh, Wind, Wind Something in Sky, Okay. Uh, oh. about his flying across the desert in the 1920s, Okay. and Boy, this is the kind of thing you should look up on the internet and make sure I'm getting all of this information oh, correct. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, going, it's going on my list of things to track down. Yeah. rocks and recognizing their meteorites. He was absolutely right. Huh. Yeah. Meteorite hunting. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, so, well, I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> so, having that introduction to sort of what you do, and it's, it's fun to get into the actual science a little bit... Um, so I I forwarded you a list of different topics. Was there one of those that really sort of grabbed your interest as something you wanted to talk about? Nope, I'm going to make you do your work. You come all right, up with it. All right, my, my 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 labor as the host uh, goes into. I actually want to talk about that last one that I added to the to the later email. Have you uh, had the chance to read or or otherwise hear very much about the uh, the the letter that's apparently been of Galileo's that's recently been discovered in London? Um, I haven't, but I have a friend who's a Galileo scholar. Yeah, I would imagine at least And this is a fascinating one. story in itself, and somebody you ought to get in touch with, because he's local, he's close by. His name is Chris Graney. Okay. And his Which is, how do you spell his last name, man? astronomy at a community college in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> and he's got family yeah. near St. Meinrod, where we met, uh, you uh-huh. know, in southern Illinois, or Indiana, rather. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he's a great he's a great speaker, but he and his wife are unique in that they both know astronomy and know Latin. Yeah. So he has been going around reading and translating and writing articles and books about all of the seventeenth century astronomers, Galileo and his rivals. Yes. So when, so when I asked him about this letter, he said it's interesting, but people are making too much out of it. It's not really telling us anything we didn't already know. Right. I mean, the mo- it, people, the, the coverage I've read, like the, I listened to the Nature podcast, and they're, they were a little bit breathless about it. Um, it sounds like, yes, we, have, we now have evidence that, yes, in fact, Galileo wrote something and then sort of dialed it back. Yeah, well, I do that, too. It's called refereeing, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One of the things I learned to do when I had a controversial paper was to turn the title from a statement to a question. Exactly. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 an excellent trick. That's that that works in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, you know, science progresses by you put new ideas out there, and you know, that's that's, and that's half what the time it is. They're wrong, and you know, At we least. don't know what you have. One of the things that uh, Chris Graney has found looking into the astronomy of the 17th century, Galileo and his rivals, is that at the time, Galileo didn't have the goods. And the best scientific evidence that they had at the time 
really looked like it was impossible for the world to be moving because they thought correctly mm-hmm. if the earth moves and you ought to be able to see a shift in the relative positions of the stars which they could not see right <laughs> and that either means that the stars were phenomenally far away which in fact is that, the case. that's the actual case yeah but they didn't think the stars are so far away for a really fun reason when you look at the star through a small telescope you see a disk right and you say to yourself, oh, I must be looking at the small ball of light that is, you know, if I were close, it would be a big ball of light. Exactly. Actually, all you're looking at is the inadequacies of your telescope, which turns tiny points into blurry disks. Yes. <laughs> yes. With perhaps a little bit of assistance from the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, the question of perspective and, Yeah. You know, I, I find the it's wonderful to compare Galileo and his times to our times and the same sorts of scientific questions that come up. Yeah. And you can see all sorts of parallels. I mean, I grew up as a scientist when I when Carl Sagan was at his prime. Mm-hmm. And if he said you did planets and everybody said, oh, you must know Carl Sagan, which I did. Right. And at the time, you sort of, you know, winced to go, oh, that pop scientist, he doesn't know the real stuff. In retrospect, we realized he did a lot of good. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure the people in Galileo's time, when they say, oh, you're an astronomer, you must know Galileo, and they'd wince and they'd go, oh, Uh. that pop. (laughs) You know, what does he know? (laughs) That controversialist. He was a popularizer. He made his money writing books in Italian to sell to the Italian crowd. Yeah, Mm. yeah. To the the people who could afford books and, uh, yeah, wanted, wanted, uh, wanted to learn a little bit more about you know, this crazy universe that we inhabit, which is not quite as simple as we were led to believe. Right, and, you know, the, a book that tells you everything you know is wrong is a sure way to write a bestseller. Yeah. Most of the time, those books aren't any good. In Galileo's case, he had the goods. He just didn't, you know, have the firm proof that he needed at the time. Right, right. You know, the the case that's sometimes made even by people who are well outside, you know, opposed to the Catholic outlook on life and existence will admit mm-hmm. that, you know, Galileo didn't have didn't have proof of what he was asserting and was and was ludicrously wrong on certain things like the tides, I think. But Yeah. But but that's all right. We the field would not have progressed without him and the spurring he gave to it through his popularizations. Just as my field of planetary science, you know, we, we groaned at Carl Sagan, but half the people under the age of 40 who are in the field now are in it because as kids they were turned on by Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah, they remember yeah. They remember that. Yeah. And did that, uh, did that engagement that Sagan uh, enabled um, at that time in our uh, history and culture did that have a tendency that seems to exist now, namely uh, getting more people interested in science uh, somehow uh, decreases their interest in or their uh, credence in uh, matters religious? I think it did in his case because it takes a certain kind of personality to put up with the fame that you have to go through. Sagan's life was not easy. Uh Um, And being famous was not easy on him. He went through two horrible divorces. While he was in the midst of producing Cosmos, 
he was personally in debt to the tune of millions of dollars because, you know, he had signed the, the notes that said we would eventually pay for this, and he yeah. didn't know how he was going to pay for it. No so in, to be that kind of person who will be willing to subject yourself to the rigors of that kind of public attention means you've got to have something burning in you that, that's eating at you. And in his case, and I can think of a few other popularizers where it might be the case, um, I think it's important to remember that he was Jewish at a time when being Jewish was not to be part of the general culture. Uh -huh. And there's a great temptation when you assimilate yourself to try to deny your roots, mm. right? to say, no, 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 I'm a regular American. I'm not you know, like these people on the street who wear hats all the time and I'm embarrassed to be associated with them, yeah. which is really a shame because you didn't have to be that way. But I think he felt insecure enough about his bona fides that he wanted to say, look, science is the only thing I am, and I'm only doing this because I really believe in science. It did have a negative effect on the science-religion debates. Wow. But part of that was just who he was and the times he came out of. Of course, the, the funny thing is, by the end of his life, he was much more open to the possibilities of religion. Yeah, right. There was a, a student of his who told me the story when uh, she was a student, she heard him say, an atheist, he says, an atheist is somebody who knows more than I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> Or the very least claims to. Right. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that, that whole uh, idea about Sagan, you know, popular, popularizing the planets, I mean, when did his career really start? His great science occurred... I think the stuff he'll be remembered for was in the early 1960s. Mm -hmm. um, he not only outlined the sort of scope of how we would look for life elsewhere, but the one piece of science I think he will really be remembered for is the role of carbon dioxide in the heating up of uh, Venus. Uh -huh. Because he was around when the first measurements of the temperature of the surface of Venus came in, mm -hmm. and he was the one who recognized the role of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, and then how that would have a role in every atmosphere that has carbon dioxide in it. Yeah. Uh, he and a, a student or colleague, I don't know if they're actually a student or not, a fellow named Jim Pollock, wrote a number of very uh, important papers in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. He wrote his first popular book in the early 70s when I was still an undergraduate, and that was when I first met him. We were, they had a bunch of us undergrads from MIT show up on a radio show uh, publicizing his first book called The Cosmic Connection. Okay. And it was one of these hippy-dippy radio shows. I can remember it was WBUR in Boston, Boston University. Mm -hmm. And so they were expecting that he was going to be kind of hippie, new age, and he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> so the interviewer says to him, Dr. Sagan, do you believe that there is a cosmic force that holds the stars and the universe together and, and holds the planets in their orbit? And he goes, yes, it's called gravity. It's called gravity, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Zing! And at one point, they finally got angry at him, and he said, ah, oh, you're just a Western scientist. And he said, well, Western New York. Right. <laughs> he had a sense of humor about it all. That would Absolutely. Be, uh, that would be priceless to have a tape of that. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I think one of the things that happens now is that uh, in the uh, re uh, science religion debate, most people seem to have lost their sense of 
humor about it and their sense of uh, the possibility of a conversation about it? Well, it's really odd because part of it is, as a bishop once said to me, once you become a bishop, nobody ever gives you a bad meal. Since I'm the, you know, a Jesuit astronomer, no one ever comes to me and says, I don't believe in science or I don't believe in religion. They don't come out you know, being aggressive at me. Yeah. Nonetheless, I have to say, I think the debate exists more in the easy literature than in reality. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. I was a scientist for 15 years before I became a Jesuit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I gave you some of the places I'd worked. And at the uh, very beginning, I was worried, what are my colleagues going to think when they discover that, oh my gosh, he's, you know, it's a Jesuit. We never knew he went to church. We never knew he was a Catholic. Right. Yeah, kind of came out of the closet as a religious believer. Right. And what happened was, over and over and over again, people said, Jesuit, that's cool, that's really neat, and whether they were believers or not. Yeah. And half the time, they would start telling me about the churches they went to. Uh-huh. And I had no idea that they were religious believers, you know. It's a, yeah. the kind of thing that you don't normally don't talk about. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I love it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's evangelization. That, uh, it's just giving permission to people to talk about something that's important to them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's something that we we do tend to compartmentalize and hold off to one side. It's it's also a uh, a dangerous assumption that you can do science independent of being human. <laughs> Indeed, we're human beings. The reason we do the science or get on TV or make podcasts is this marvelous mixture of reason and emotion. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't be making the podcast if it wasn't fun to make. People wouldn't be listening to it if it wasn't fun to listen to. Exactly. Right. And yeah. yet there's got to be intellectual content too, or else it'd be fun. Right. Well, right. And I mean, that's exactly what the fun and is, is, is sinking your mind into it, you know, wrapping your mental tentacles around it, taking it apart, putting it back together. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a joy to do this. It's a delight to do it. And the first step in being able to do science, or religion for that matter, is to say, I don't know, but I can find out. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and the two deadly things are either to say, I already know, you know, it's deadly in faith, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to belong to a church, I already know God. Right. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> or I don't need to be a scientist, I already know how the universe works. Yeah, right. Or enough of it that but, I don't care about anything beyond what I already yeah. know. Yeah, which, which which is very sad. But the other fallacy is to say God is so big I could never know Him. The universe is so big I could never understand it. Right. And of course you're never going to know it completely. But it's the process of learning that's fun. It, it's the best example I can give is falling in love. And yeah, I'm a Jesuit now, but I, I had enough fallings in love to be able to speak of them mm-hmm. when it worked and when it didn't. And the joy is not that, all right, this person is a problem whom I have solved. (laughs) Right. That never happens. No. (laughs) It's rather, this is a person who I can keep learning about better and better and better for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 
And yet you do yeah. also take joy in the things that you've already learned and the experiences you've already had. I mean, both of those are, both of those are present. Yeah, and and you go back and you revisit them and you get more joy out of them in part because it's like watching a movie for the second time. You mm-hmm. begin to notice things you hadn't seen the first time. Yes, for certain. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, um, you talked about, obviously you've uh, talked about Carl Sagan quite a bit, and you've written a number of books yourself, uh, aimed at a fairly popular audience. Um, yeah, how, so I how... say, don't trust anybody who's a popularizer. I am one, I know. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's a very Groucho Marx sort of line. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't join a club that would have me as a member. Um, Indeed. So to what degree do you think that his way of uh, communicating inspired you or, for that matter, gave you uh, sort of warnings of uh, how you, ways you wanted to avoid expressing yourself in your, in your books for a more popular audience? Well, the first big thing he did was he made it possible. Right. He showed the rest of the world that was a, there was a market for the kind of stuff I like to popularize. Mm-hmm. that there is a big interest in it. And he did that by being very approachable, by being informal. Um, you know, he showed up on The Tonight Show wearing a turtleneck rather than a suit. Right. That was a big deal back in 1970. Yeah. Yes. And it became his trademark, you know, so I've got the collar instead of the turtleneck, but it's the same. <laughs> it's the same thing. Right. Yeah, it's true. And he also was actually very good at listening to people when they asked questions and he could hear the question they had not the one that he had an answer prepared for yes Uh, boy that's a trick to be able to do and that's something i struggle with at times but i think that was a great great uh great example i have one more carl sagan story to tell by the way just occurs to when it comes to answering questions uh, after one of my talks, this is back in, in Houston someplace, and a little old lady, lovely little old lady, comes up and says, have you read this book by Dr. Sagan? And I answered with this, you know, sort of, well, I knew Carl Sagan, ma'am, you know. He was, he was a friend of mine, which is stretching the truth quite a bit. <laughs> and I said, and he was a wonderful man. And she replied, yes, I know. He was my brother. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, wow! Yeah. Did you did you get any? I mean, what? How much further did that conversation go? Well, she was uh, you know, suddenly you know moving on, and I had to move. So okay. we just exchanged a few pleasantries, and that was about okay. it. Okay, yeah, well, that's close encounters of uh, indeed Carl Sagan siblings. Um. So are there things that happened to him in sort of a negative sense that you, I mean, obviously you've mentioned that he, he went through a lot of difficulties. I'm you know, not aware that you had to go through a divorce or being $100 million in debt. but Well, I, I just know that one of my uh, colleagues at the University of Arizona as a grad student was a postdoc at Cornell and for a year had to teach Carl's classes because the divorce that he was going through at that time was so ferocious he was not allowed to set foot in the state of New York without being you know, served with papers. Oh, boy. Oh, it, you know, just, <clears throat> that's more than a human being really needs to have. And the fact that 20 years after his death, three of us who were strangers are still talking about his personal life. Yeah. <laughs> it, was that, it was that ferocious, yeah, right. yes. 
Uh, that, that, yeah. You, if you read Wikipedia for random celebrities, yeah, you rapidly come to that conclusion that, you know, maybe that's not really, uh, being, being uh, rich and famous is not necessarily all that it's cracked up to be. You've got to have a strange hunger to be able to do it. I've met a couple of people who had the opportunity to become famous and were smart enough to say, no, I'm going to walk away from this. And yeah. basically told reporters to, you know, don't bother calling me anymore. Right, ah. right, to sidestep that, yeah. That concluded our discussion about Galileo, Carl Sagan, and fame. So next week we'll present you the other half of the interview where we go off to talk more about teaching and bringing people to appreciate the joy of science and what it is about human nature that even allows us to do that in the first place. So stay tuned. Be with us next week.